We are on teaching number eight in our Colossians Bible study established in grace. Today's teaching is a continuation of last week's teaching, Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Last week was part one. This is part two. And we find Paul's prayer for the Colossians in Colossians 1, 9 through 13. And Paul writes, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have full endurance and patience." and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week in this prayer. And Paul starts off in writing to the Colossians. He's saying, I'm continuing to pray for you. I'm not going to stop praying for you. And he knew they were facing a lot of pressure in Colossae. They were under a lot of pressure, and we're going to look at what pressure they were under. We looked at it last week. We're going to look at it a little bit more this week. But he said, I'm continuing to pray for you, and in my prayer, I'm asking God to fill you. Notice Paul's emphasis on the internal here. I'm asking God to fill you. That's internal. So what is he asking God to fill the Colossian believers with? I'm asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. That's information. That's education. All right. It's very important within the body of Christ that we have good, strong, solid, biblically teaching ministries where we're educating people about biblical truth. We're giving them information. We're helping them understand biblical information. So Paul said, I'm asking God to fill you, that's internal, with the knowledge of his will, that's information and education, in all spiritual wisdom, that's insight, and understanding, that's intellect. So it was at the heart of Paul that God fill the Colossian believers with spiritual truth, and not only fill them with spiritual truth, but they would understand spiritual truth. And that is so important that believers in Christ understand spiritual truth because spiritual truth lacks power in the life of a believer if the believer doesn't understand spiritual truth. So we want to make sure as Bible teachers that we help people understand biblical truth because it's the understanding or the explanation of biblical truth that leads to transformation in the life of a person. So whatever information we are filled with will control us, you know, from a spiritual standpoint, whatever doctrine we're filled with, whatever we're being educated about by whoever our spiritual leaders may be, that education, that information is going to fill us and it's going to control us. So within Colossae, there was philosophism, which was information being poured into the Colossian people. Philosophism is the different thoughts and ideas about God, life, the world, the universe. Can you know God? Does God even exist? What really matters in life anyway? What's the meaning of life? What happens when we die? Is there an afterlife, a reincarnation? All these discussions of philosophy were very popular during Paul's time as they are today. Judaism was other information that was being poured into the Colossian believers. And Judaism was seeking to gain God's forgiveness and acceptance through the observance of religious days and practices, the observance of a religious calendar. And we'll study that more in future studies. We studied it partially last week. More information being poured into the Colossians was spiritualism and mysticism, which is seeking to connect with God through spiritual and mystical experiences. There's a deeper meaning to scripture, a mystic would say. There's deeper life, a mystic would say. There's higher levels you can get to in your relationship with God, a, a spiritualist would say. These people in, in our time, they, they may pay a little bit of attention to the historical 
meaning of a verse in the Bible, but they're really more about, there, there's got to be a, what's Jesus's deeper meaning to this parable? What's Jesus's deeper meaning to this verse? What's Paul's deeper meaning? What's Peter's deeper meaning? In order for us to get to a higher level in our relationship with God, we've got to understand the deeper meanings to scripture happens as we, we miss what the real meaning is. When we're looking for a deeper meaning, we, we miss the real historical meaning, which is where the power is. So when people try to start looking at deeper meanings to get to deeper life and higher levels, totally uh, have become spiritualists and mystics within how we interpret scripture. And we want to understand it histor- historically so that you protect people against anybody who, well, what's the deeper meaning? More information being poured into the Colossian people was legalism, which is seeking to gain God's acceptance through rules and regulations. If I follow the rules, if I meet the regulations, then God will accept me. Asceticism is seeking to gain God's acceptance and connect with God through self-denial, self-discipline, denying ourselves worldly goods or worldly pleasures. It's almost becoming monk life, you know, like, like a monk. It's becoming like a monk living in a monastery that if I can deny myself the pleasures of the world and live in this monastery, then I can draw closer to God. I can get closer to God. I can spend more time with God. It's almost a removal of oneself from the real world. I'm just going to concentrate on God. That's asceticism. Not only whatever information we are filled with will control us, but also whatever emotion we are filled with will flow from us. If anger fills us, anger will flow from us. If bitterness, jealousy, envy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, whatever emotion fills us, it will flow from us. Whatever information fills us, it will control us. And so Paul is praying for the Colossian people here because he understood whatever information the Colossian people are filled with will control them. And so, again, in Paul's prayer, Colossians 1, 9 through 10, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, that's their coming to understand the gospel of grace within context. The gospel of grace, when they heard it and understood it, produced in them faith, hope, love, fruit, It produced spiritual growth in them when they heard the gospel of grace and they understood the gospel of grace. So Paul says, for for since this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, information, with all spiritual wisdom, insight, and understanding, intellect, so that you may, now here's the reason he's praying these things, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's verse 10. Let's break this down. Let's first look at walk in a manner. What does that mean? And then we want to look at worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? So Paul's praying that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So to walk in a manner simply means conducting myself consistently, that I'm consistently conducting myself in a way that is worthy of the Lord. We're going to look at that in just a moment. In this word walk, it means as you live wherever you go, whoever you're with, be consistently loving, be consistently kind, be consistently good, be consistently moral. Don't change from one environment to the next. Don't allow the environment to change how we live, but we want to change the environment that we live in. We want to be environment changers. So in whatever environment we find ourselves in, we we want to be consistent. We want to be consistent in our conduct. We want to be consistent in our attitudes. We want to be consistent in our actions. We want to be consistent in how we talk to people and how we treat people to walk in a manner, just be consistent. No matter where we are, we want to be consistent in how we live, how we love and, and how we behave and in our attitudes. So walk in a manner Worthy of the Lord. Now, this word worthy isn't talking about value. It's not saying to walk in a way that you are worthy of the Lord. That's not the thought here. This word worthy is not describing value in context. It's not describing making ourselves of worth or value in its context. Because our worth and our value as people comes from the fact that we were created by God. God created us in his image. 
He created us to be in a relationship with him. He created us. The fact that we're created by God, that alone is where our value and where our worth is. So what does this word mean? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord or conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, the word worthy here in the Greek means fitting or matching. Let how you live match who you are. Let how you live fit who you are. We could say the way you're living doesn't fit or match who you are and whose you are. For example, in Ephesians 4, 17 through 20 and 5, 3, Paul begins listing a list of moral traits, a list of relational traits, a list of character traits, how to talk to people, how not to talk to people. He's talking in that whole context about put off these ways of behavior and put on the new way of behavior. Put away the old way, put on the new way of living. And what Paul says in here in Ephesians 5, 3 is he says, these are improper for God's saints. So Paul is giving a list of characteristics, of behavior characteristics, of relational characteristics, of unethical characteristics that are improper for God's saints. Meaning in Ephesians 5, 3, they don't fit who you are. So he's encouraging the believers in Ephesians to, to put on a lifestyle that matches who you are in Christ, that fits who you are as God's loved son, as God's loved daughter. So walk in a manner of the worthy of, of the Lord means let the way you live match who you are in Jesus and what you have learned about Jesus. Or consistently live in a way that fits who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you, which would then mean consistently making choices that are consistent with who you are and whose you are. And that's what Paul does in Ephesians 4, 17 through a lot of chapter 5. He also does this in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Paul teaches on a consistent lifestyle of believers that matches who they are in Christ. In Colossians 3, 1 through 17, notice the connection between a person's conduct and a person's identity in Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Let how you live match your identity in Christ. So Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. So it's important before we teach believers how to live, we need to teach them who they are in Christ. Most believers don't understand who they are in Christ. They don't know their identity in Christ. So many Bible teachers will skip our identity in Christ and go right to morality. Paul never does that. The first thing Paul does is he establishes people in their identity in Christ. Then he moves to morality because when he begins focusing on morality, he always refers back to their identity in Christ. And so it's really important as Bible teachers and as Bible communicators, we want to help people understand their identity before we move to morality. Sometimes when I teach the gospel and I teach through books of the Bible, I'll be teaching in the early chapters of Ephesians or the early chapters of Galatians or even the early chapters of Colossians. And I'll begin to be attacked. Well, he doesn't care about ethics. He doesn't care about morality. Well, I do, but I'm establishing a foundation of identity first because I don't want to get ahead of, of what the Holy Spirit is writing through Paul. If the Holy Spirit writing through Paul focuses first on identity before moving to morality, then I don't want to get ahead of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And so Paul begins talking about morality in, a, in Colossians chapter 3, but he's established the identity of the believer first. It's really important. So Paul says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. And it would be good, and we're going to do this in context, we're going to go back and see, well, what's the since then? Because that's really important there. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You've been raised with Christ. You're with Christ. You've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We learned that in Ephesians. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Notice what he does here is, again, identity. You died, identity. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God, identity. 
when Christ, who is your life identity, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So you notice what Paul is doing in these verses. He's focusing the attention of the believers on their identity with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You, you, in the verses prior, you died with Christ. You've been forgiven by Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. These are all identity verses. Now he moves to morality. Therefore, because of your identity, let this be your morality. Because of your identity, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now he's talking about morality and ethics. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with, this, with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew. He's going back to identity here. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Paul again moves from identity to morality in Colossians chapter 3. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Notice what he does here. It's identity. He's about to talk about loving characteristics that we want to have in our relationships. But before he moves into loving characteristics within our relationships, he wants us to know that we're loved by God. We're purely loved. We're completely loved. We're dearly loved by God. And so God is compassionate to us. He's kind to us. He's gentle. He's patient. God is a humble God. Now what Paul is saying, as God's chosen people, as those who are holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Put these character traits on. Put on compassion in your relationships. Put on kindness in your relationships. Put on humility in your relationships. Put on gentleness and patience in your relationships because that's how God loves us. Remember, whatever fills us will flow from us. Whatever information comes to us will control us. Paul's bringing information and education to the Colossians about how much they're loved by God, about their identity in Christ. And then based upon how much they're loved by God, based upon their identity in Christ, let these characteristics flow from you. Let, these, let this conduct flow from you. Let this way of treating people and this way of relating to people flow from you. Paul finishes in these verses when he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now he's going back to identity there. He's talking about forgive as the Lord forgave you. Paul's mentioned forgiveness two other times in Colossians 1.14 and 2.14. So he's reminding them that they are fully forgiven by Christ. Now take this forgiveness and let it flow from you to other people. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. That's identity. You are forgiven. And so we want people to understand their identity Rather than just saying, hey, you need to go forgive people, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, as you have been forgiven by the Lord fully and completely and forever, now you go forgive other people. Notice it flows from the gospel. It flows from our identity. And Paul says, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And then we see also in Colossians for let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Notice here it's, it's let the message of Christ dwell among you. In some versions say dwell in you richly. 
Whatever dwells in us will be what we do. Whatever lives in us will be how we live. So what Paul is saying here is let the message of Christ, let the gospel of Christ. What is that gospel? Well, it's the gospel of grace where he refers back to Colossians 1, 3 through 8. Let this gospel of Christ that brings us peace, let it dwell within us. Let it control us. Let it rule your hearts. Let it control your hearts. Because remember, whatever dwells within us will be what we'll do. Whatever information is in us will, will be how we live. Whatever emotion is in us will be what flows from us. So let the peace of Christ be in charge of your hearts. Let it control you. Let the message of Christ dwell richly within you. That's the gospel of grace. Let it dwell within you and then let it be how we relate to one another. Paul goes on to say, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. So Paul again is talking about how do we live? He says, whatever it is, wherever you go, wherever you walk, whatever you do, whether it's in word, whatever you say or, or deed, whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus. That's this idea of, of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fitting, equal to who you are in Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right, let's go back to Paul's prayer in Colossians, Colossians 1, 9 through 10. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now let's look at this phrase, pleasing him in every way. What does that mean? Pleasing him in every way. Well, we want to please the Lord in how we live. We want to please the Lord morally. We want to please the Lord relationally. We want to please the Lord wherever we are. Uh, we want to please him at home. We want to please him at work. We want to please him within the community and the neighborhood that we live. And we've got to be careful not to get under legalism here. Our acceptance is not wrapped up in any of our conduct. And, and it's not from a place of fear. You know, we, we want to please the Lord in how we live and, and what we do and where we go and how we communicate with those around us. We want to please God with what we teach. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 1, 10 through 12 about pleasing God with what we teach in contrast to pleasing others. Paul writes in Galatians 1, 10 through 12. Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings? Am I trying to win the approval of people or am I wanting to win the approval with God in what I teach is what is his context. Or am I trying to please people with what I teach? If I were still trying to please people with what I teach, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached, he's wanting to please God with the gospel that he preaches. He's not wanting to please people. So that the gospel that I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive this gospel from any man, nor was I taught it by any man, that the gospel that I preached came to me by revelation from Jesus Christ. And this gospel that Paul preached is the gospel of grace. In the context, the Galatian people had deserted grace and had gone back to the law. And Paul had a decision to make. Am I going to choose to please those in Jerusalem with what I preach? Or am I going to please the Lord Jesus Christ with what I preach? Because many of the leaders in Jerusalem were still under the law of Moses. They were mixing the law of Moses with the cross of Jesus. Paul writes about a time in Galatians when his ministry of grace and his message of grace was challenged. But rather than seeking to please the esteemed religious leaders who were in Jerusalem with what he taught, he continued to please God by teaching the gospel of grace. And that's why he writes in Galatians 1, 10 through 12. He was under a lot of pressure to change what he was teaching because what he was teaching was not accepted by many of these religious leaders in Jerusalem. But Paul said, if, if I change what I preach, then I'm not serving Christ and I'm seeking to win the approval of religious leaders rather than be approved by Jesus with what I preach. So here's what Paul writes in Galatians 2, 1 through 9. It says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem this time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. 
Now, why were they going to Jerusalem? Well, if you want to write in here, Acts 15, it's the Jerusalem debate. It's the, it's the grace debate. When the religious leaders of Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas, Titus, went to Jerusalem because people from Jerusalem were coming into Antioch and they were challenging this message of grace that Paul was preaching. And they were wanting him to change what he taught. And Paul said, I went to Jerusalem with Barnabas. I took Titus with me also. I went in response to a revelation. Jesus revealed to Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. So I went to Jerusalem with revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. That's James, that's John, and that's Peter. We're going to see in context. So Paul had a meeting with James. Paul had a meeting with John and Paul had a meeting with Peter and the other elders who were in Jerusalem. Why did Paul go? I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. This is the gospel of grace. We learned this in Acts 20, 24. It's the gospel of grace that Paul was sent by Jesus to proclaim. It was this gospel of grace that the Galatians were deserting. And it's the same gospel of grace that Paul was being pressured to change. And he said, you know what, if I change what I preach, then I'm trying to win the approval of these religious leaders in Jerusalem. And my goal is not to win the approval of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. My goal is for, for Jesus himself to approve of the, of the gospel of grace that I preach. But he went to present before these leaders, these esteemed as leaders, by, the, by other people, they would look at James and they would look at Peter and they would look at John and say, wow, these are the guys. These are the leaders. We esteem them. We hold them highly. Whatever they say goes. Paul had to go present the gospel that he preached to this group of people. He said, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had, I not, and had not been running my race in vain, the teaching of the gospel of grace. Yet not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. I go into a lot of the detail of this in, in my uh, Bible study that we did on Galatians. If you want to fill in some of the blanks, he said, this matter arose because some false believers had inf infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. Notice that the gospel of grace brings freedom from rules, regulations, it brings freedom from having to have certain experiences with the mystics and the spiritualists. It frees us from having to go to deeper levels and the higher levels. The gospel of grace brings a person to a place of freedom because I know I'm loved. I know I'm forgiven. I know I'm accepted. I don't have to obtain anything by going to higher levels. I don't have to maintain anything. It's free. And it's freely given to us in Christ. So there were those who were spying on Paul's message. They were slipping in to when Paul was teaching and they were listening behind the scenes when Paul was teaching and they were seeking to discredit his message of the gospel of grace and to bring people back under a works-oriented, experience-oriented, expectation-oriented, regulation-oriented way of relating to God following spiritual practices and observances. Here's what Paul did. I love this. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What would have happened if Paul would have sought to please these religious leaders in Jerusalem with what he taught? We would not have the book of Ephesians today. We would not have the book of Romans today. We would not have the book of Colossians today. We would not have the book of Galatians today. But Paul stood up for the gospel of grace, and he stood strong in the gospel of grace, and he refused to seek to please man in what he taught relating to the gospel of grace. But Paul goes on to say in these verses, as for those who were held in high esteem, John, James, and Peter, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Here's what Paul says. I don't care who they are. I don't care what kind of reputation they have in the eyes of other people. It doesn't matter to me how well esteemed they are in the eyes of other people. 
He said, because the message of the gospel is much more important than men. Men's acceptance of me does not compare, he says, to me preaching the message of the gospel and Jesus approving the gospel message of grace. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. These group of men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. That's Gentile is the uncircumcised. Peter went to the circumcised, which is the Jews. They, they settled on the gospel of grace at the end of or halfway through Acts 15, if you want to fill in the blanks, some here. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, how do I know that these people held in high esteem were James, Peter, and John? Because Paul says it right here. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, these are the ones back in Jerusalem. All right, these were the ones who were giving Paul some problems in the early days of the church, uh, probably mid-AD 40s or so. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. So in this meeting that they had, they finally recognized the gospel of grace. And they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and that they to the circumcised. Now, in contrast to Paul, who did not seek to please the religious leaders from Jerusalem, there was Peter who sought to please the Judaizers, those who were combining the law of Moses with the grace of Jesus for obtaining forgiveness and acceptance. All right. Paul was not seeking to please man with his teaching of the gospel of grace, but we see Peter deserting the gospel of grace and going back to the law of Moses or mixing the cross and the law of Moses together. And Paul writes about this in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. When Peter came to Antioch, and Paul said, I, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from, if you want to circle this, James, that's those held in high esteem. That's those who were giving Paul some trouble about his gospel grace in the early days of the church. Before these certain men or these specific men came from James or were sent from James to Antioch, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. That's grace, not under the law of Moses. But when they arrived, when these men who were sent from James, when they arrived in Antioch, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's the Jews. So why did Peter move away from the gospel of grace and back to the law of Moses? because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's the men sent from James. He craved their acceptance. He did not want to be rejected by them. He wanted them to approve of him. He wanted them to accept him. He craved the acceptance of these esteemed religious leaders. And because he craved the acceptance of these religious leaders, he returned to the law of Moses, and returning to the law of Moses, he rejected the gospel of grace. This is an unbelievable story that we see in Scripture. Because Peter turned away from the gospel of grace into the law of Moses, and because he was such an influencer, says the other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is the one who helped start the church in Antioch, and now he's walking away from the gospel of grace. Paul said, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, what is that? It's around uh, Acts 15, 11, I believe, when Peter stood up in the Jerusalem council and he said, we believe that we, the Jews, are justified just as they are the Gentiles by grace through faith in Jesus. And at some point in time after Acts 15, Peter turned away from this decision that was made in Acts 15. And not only did he turn away, but Barnabas turned away and others turned away. And Paul said, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? I say all that to say, we want to please God in every way. That's the prayer of Paul. We want to please God ethically. We want to please God morally. And we want to please God in, in teaching the gospel of grace. 
We can be like Paul and stand up for the gospel and not give in to religious legalists for one second, because if we give in to religious legalists and spiritualists and Judaizers, then the gospel of grace is going to be lost for future generations. We've got to stand up for the gospel of grace if the gospel of grace is going to stand for all generations. And you and I are so grateful that Paul stood up for the gospel of grace in his day when religious leaders were coming against him. Because if Paul would have not stood up for the gospel of grace, you and I wouldn't be doing a Bible study right now in Colossians. We would never have had the book of Romans, Philippians, Ephesians. That's where we get the deeper understandings of the truth of grace. So I've got a few other verses on pleasing God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. So we make it our goal to please Jesus and all that we do, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul was motivated by pleasing the Lord. He understood that he would stand before the Lord one day and give an accounting of really of his gospel message. As we read further in the context of 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, and we go all the way to 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul is going to deliver some very good news as it relates to appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is starting in verse 18 of Corinthians chapter five, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And that Jesus took all of our sinfulness upon himself at the cross. And we've been given all of his righteousness when we place our faith in Christ. So that when you and I stand before this judgment seat, we will stand before him righteous. We will stand before him forgiven. We will stand before him completely accepted because of what Jesus has done for us. Part of Paul's motivation here to please the Lord was to get the gospel of grace to as many people as he could, because he was convinced in these verses that Jesus loved everybody. And he wanted to get that message that Jesus loves everybody and he died for everyone. Romans 14, 18 says this about pleasing the Lord. Whoever serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. In this way means putting limits on my liberty because I love my brother or sister in Christ more than I do my liberty. Someone asked a great question last week in our discussion after the Bible study about drinking alcoholic beverages. What Paul would say, and he did say in Romans chapter 14, he says, whatever you believe about wine, keep that between you and the Lord. But if your drinking wine causes your brother to stumble, then give up your liberty to drink wine because you love your brother more than you love your liberty. So when we as believers begin to love our liberty in Christ more than we love our brother in Christ, something's gone wrong there. And so what we want to do is if my liberty hurts my brother in any way, Paul said, I'd rather give up my liberty and have a loving influence on my brother. That pleases the Lord when we give up our liberty to have a, a loving influence on our brother in Christ. Second Corinthians eight twenty one, Paul says, we're taking great care to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. This is in reference to how they handled the financial contribution made by the Gentile believers in support of the suffering Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Paul said, we want to, we want to please the Lord in how we manage the money that's so freely contributed to our ministry, and that was contributed by the Gentiles to the Jews. And, and so within a church context, within a ministry context, we want to please the Lord with how we manage the money that people contribute. Again, pleasing the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So we want to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And that was Paul's prayer for the Colossian people, that they would live in a way pleasing to the Lord. Now, remember, Paul is praying that after being filled with the knowledge of the will of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, he's praying that the Colossian believers would please God in every way by living consistently with who they are and whose they are and by bearing fruit in every good work. So Paul is always clear that our works do not achieve for us salvation. He goes out of his way to ensure that no one can misunderstand him to say that works play a role in salvation. He went so far out of his way that people would accuse him of not caring about morality or caring about ethics. That's how you know you're preaching the gospel of grace. If that attack can be made against a person 
then that person is more than likely communicating the gospel of grace. That attack will never be made to a legalist. But somebody who is communicating that salvation is all of faith in Christ, has nothing to do with works and efforts. Paul went out of his way to communicate that message, but he was accused of being light on sin and giving people a license to sin in the process, which was proof that he was preaching the gospel. However, Paul does talk about good works, such as in Ephesians 2.10. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work. So he's going out of his way to make sure people understand salvation is not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance as our way of life or for us to walk in. So God has created good works for us. But Paul wanted us to know that these good works have nothing to do with your salvation but your salvation will help produce these good works. And Paul isn't even saying, hey, measure whether you're saved by good works. Paul is just saying salvation is by grace through faith in Christ apart from works, but God has created good works for us to walk in. Paul also writes about good works in Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to say no to ungodliness, and worldly desires, and, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Notice the motivation. Notice what, what compels in these verses a person to say no to ungodliness, and no to worldly desires, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It's grace. Some people will say, Brad, you talk about grace too much. People are going to go sin. Well, biblically, it's the very opposite. The Bible says the law stimulates sin. The law creates more sin. I mean, give a child a law, you know, don't, don't step on the grass. Well, I'm going to step on the grass. You know, don't put that there and just focus on a love relationship with the child. The child won't even think about stepping on the grass. We've talked about if there's a hole in a fence and there's a there's a law written on by the hole. It says, don't look at the hole in the fence where more people are going to look at the hole in the fence simply because there's a law that says, don't look at the hole in the fence. But what if you and I are with somebody and we're, we're engaging in a very graceful, loving, kind relationship with that person. And we walk right by the fence with a hole in it, but there's no sign that says, don't look at the hole, but they're focused on this graceful relationship. We're going to walk right by the fence that has the hole in it that they're never even going to think about looking at because they're so engaged in this grace relationship that we have. That's what Paul is saying here. The grace of God is the teacher. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that's love, that's grace, that he might redeem us or set us free from all iniquity or sin and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So Paul emphasizes good works in his writings, but he always separates them from salvation. And he includes them in this is the lifestyle of a believer, is a lifestyle of good works. Hebrews 3.16, and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So we're talking about in Colossians 1.10, bearing fruit in every good work, which is what Paul was praying for the believers. Our good works bear fruit in the lives of people. Our good works don't bring us salvation, but they do bring transformation to the lives of other people. So good works aren't about us. Good works are always about others. Our good works don't merit salvation for us, but our good works make a difference in the lives of people. I love Acts 10, 37 through 38, where it says Jesus went around doing good. Acts 10, 37 through 38 reads, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee. And this is Peter talking. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. 
And Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Notice this. Jesus was around people who were under the power of the devil, but he brought healing to these people's lives. He brought hope to these people's lives because he went around doing good. He was compelled by the Holy Spirit. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. He's going around doing good. And he had the power to heal people. But when you and I, hey, we're saved, we're secure. Our salvation's not by works, but by grace. And as we go around just doing good and we, we become channels of God's grace to people, we, we become channels of his kindness to people, we become channels of his goodness to people which were all fruits of the Holy Spirit. We then are able to have an impact in the spiritual world where Satan is actively seeking to hurt people and oppress people and damage people simply by doing good works. When we do good, we are part of God's process to set people free from the power of Satan by allowing the Holy Spirit in us and through us to do good works. All right, because God is with us and God is in us just as he was with Jesus. Look what Romans 12, 21 says about overcoming evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we see a lot of evil in our world today. And it's so easy to attack the evil. It's so easy to criticize the evil, which ultimately doesn't do any good. But how do we overcome the evil? We overcome the evil with good. If we more concentrate on doing good rather than attacking the evil with slander and condemnation, but we're saying, you know what? There's evil in the world. What are we going to do? We're going to do what Jesus did. Wherever we go, wherever we walk, whoever we're with, we're going to change the environment. We're not going to allow the environment to change us, but we're going to be environment changers by doing good, by having a good attitude and changing the lives of people as we do good. All right, well, let's finish up Paul's prayer for the Colossians. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have full endurance and patience. So in this part of the prayer, Paul is praying that they would grow in the knowledge of God, which is understanding the truth about who God is, about that in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled. And Paul's going to teach on that. We're going to look at that further in, in Colossians. Paul also prayed that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have full endurance and patience, or meaning so that you will not give up and, and give in no matter how great the struggle is and no matter how great the pressure is. And remember, the Colossians were under tremendous pressure from the philosophers, the spiritualists, the mystics, the ascetics, the legalists, and the Judaizers, the same pressure that Peter was under. These Colossians were under that same pressure to leave the God of grace and the grace of God and try to earn or qualify, try to earn God's forgiveness and acceptance through a system of works. So in Paul's prayer, he moves into joyfully giving thanks to the Father. And then he gives the content. Why is it that the Colossian people could joyfully give thanks to the Father rather than bowing to the pressure of the philosophers, the spiritualists, the mystics, the ascetics, the legalists, and the Judaizers, which is why Epaphras went to Paul in the first place. Paul, I got some concerns. The philosophers, the spiritualists, the mystics, the ascetics, the legalists, the Judaizers, they're putting a lot of pressure on the Colossian believers. They're trying to get them to earn what you're giving for free. They're trying to get them to qualify themselves for your acceptance and your forgiveness. They're putting pressure on them to have deeper experiences and to meet the expectations and to follow the rules and the regulations in order to earn your acceptance, in order to live in your forgiveness. And so notice Paul's response here is that the Colossian people, as they grow in this knowledge of God, 
that they would be able to resist this pressure that's coming at them. And they would do this by joyfully giving thanks to the Father. He gives four reasons here to joyfully give thanks to the Father. Reason number one in Paul's prayer, Colossians 1.12, is because the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. That's something to be joyful about because what Paul is doing is he's setting these Colossian people free. I know the mystics are putting pressure on you. I know the Judaizers are putting pressure on you. I know the legalists are putting pressure on you. I know the spiritualists and the mystics are putting pressure on you. God's not putting any pressure on you, Paul is saying, because God has qualified you to share, to experience the inheritance of the saints. And what is that inheritance? It's the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. It's that we've been raised with Christ and we've been seated with Christ and we're accepted in Christ and we're complete in Christ. God has qualified you. We don't qualify ourselves. You know, a lot of times that there's going to be a big race, those who are in the race have to qualify for the race by past performances. And if their past performance is good enough, then they can qualify for the race. Well, our qualification is not about our performance. Our qualification is in the person of Jesus Christ. We share in the inheritance of the saints. An inheritance is something that someone else worked for and is freely given us. But let's say a person, somebody has a big inheritance coming to them when their parents die. How much of that inheritance did the person work for who's receiving the inheritance? Zero. An inheritance is I'm receiving wealth and I'm receiving riches that somebody else worked for. And I'm qualified to receive these, not because of what I've done, but because of what they've done. And and my bloodline qualifies me for it. Notice the pressure that would have been removed from the Colossian people. God has qualified you. Don't listen to the mystics. Don't listen to the spiritualists. Don't listen to the Judaizers. Don't listen to the legalists. Look to Jesus because he's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Not only has he qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints, verse 13, but he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, joyfully given things. I've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. That's the dominion of Satan. Reason number three to be joyful, because not only have we been rescued from the dominion of darkness, but he has brought us, God, the one who has qualified us, has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We're already citizens of the kingdom of God. You and I are forgiven. We're forgiven citizens of the kingdom. We're righteous citizens of the kingdom. Look at reason number four, to joyfully give thanks to the Father. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a major point Paul is trying to make to the Colossians. Because evidently, as we read the book of Colossians, he mentions this idea of forgiveness three times. This is his first time. That you and I, in Christ, we have redemption. The word redemption means the full payment of our sins. And the forgiveness of sins is we have been fully and forever forgiven of all sins. That forgiveness is not an ongoing process. God is not in the process of continually forgiving us of our sins. That was the Old Testament. That was the law of Moses. In Jesus, we have the full payment of our sins. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we receive this full payment. We are completely forgiven. There is no more forgiveness that God's going to grant us because he's given, us, he's given forgiveness to us fully and forever and freely in Christ, in whom we have in whom the person is Jesus, we have the possession of forgiveness. We possess forgiveness. It is ours. We have it. We don't get more forgiveness from God because God has given all of his forgiveness now to us. It is ours. We possess it. Evidently, what was going on in Colossae, where they were trying to convince the people, where you're not forgiven. There are certain things you have to do to be forgiven or to stay forgiven. Look what Paul wrote in Colossians 2, 13 through 16. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. Paul is trying to get that message to the Colossian believers. 
All of your sins are forgiven. You have forgiveness. Why? Because the legalists were saying you have to get more forgiveness. You have to stay forgiven. The Judaizers were saying in order to stay forgiven, you have to follow the calendar or do the practices. And so Paul is trying to bring freedom to the believers here by saying he forgave us all of our sins. And he goes on in the rest of the verse to totally reject living according to the law of Moses, since we're now not under law, but under grace. We live according to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what Paul says in Colossians 3.13 about forgiveness. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. He's going back to Colossians 2.13 and 14. He's going back to Colossians 1.13 and 14. He's trying to convince to the believers that you are forgiven. That's part of your inheritance. You have forgiveness in Christ. Now, as we wrap up, I want us to compare Colossians 1, 12 through 14 with Acts 26, 15 through 18. Acts 26, 15 through 18 is the message of Jesus to Paul as it relates to forgiveness, as it relates to the dominion of darkness and light coming to the Gentiles. So here's what Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says. Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his saints in the kingdom of light. For the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now compare this with Acts 26, 15 through 18. Paul said, then I ask, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you, Paul, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes. And here's what I want us to see and turn them from darkness to light. Compare that with Colossians we read a few minutes ago. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and we've been placed into the kingdom of light. Paul was carrying out the message of Jesus when he was writing to the Colossians to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Go back up to Colossians, and it says that you and I have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves. We've been rescued from the power of Satan or the dominion of Satan and placed into the kingdom of the Son he loves so that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is almost exactly what Paul wrote as he ended his prayer in Colossians. From darkness to light, the power of Satan to God, reminding the believers that through faith in Christ, they had the redemption, they had the forgiveness of sins, it was there. So that's a really a neat comparison to make. So let's summarize Paul's prayer. He's asking they be, the Colossian people be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they please the Lord in every way, that they bear fruit in every good work, that they grow in the knowledge of God, that they be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, and that they give thanks joyfully to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For God had rescued them from the dominion of darkness and brought them into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom they had redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Give thanks joyfully. Look what Paul says in Colossians 1, 6 through 7. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, that's the doctrine of the gospel of grace, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And look what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 15. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Notice in both Colossians 1, 6 through 7, overflowing with thankfulness. 2 Corinthians 4, 15, overflowing with thankfulness. And notice what produces this overflowing with thankfulness. It's the grace of God. It's when we understand the grace of God, when we understand that we're forgiven, and we've been raised with Christ, and we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and there's so much more to the gospel of grace. Here's what Paul is saying. Don't listen to the mystics. Don't listen to the legalist. Don't listen to the spiritualist. Don't listen to the Judaizers. He says, here's what you do. 
They're telling you that there's something else you have to go do. And here's what Paul is saying. There's nothing else you have to go do. You are complete in Christ. Just focus on giving thanks to the Father for what he's already done for you in Christ. And when you and I focus on giving thanks to the Father for what he's done for us in Christ, then we're set free from the expectations and having to have the experiences and having to find the deeper meaning to that word in Scripture. We're free because we're now, God, thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that you've rescued me from the dominion of darkness and I now live in the, in the kingdom of light. Thank you so much that I'm righteous before you and I'm seated with you in the heavenlies. I mean, as you and I just overflow with thankfulness for what Christ has done for us, it'll bring a lot of freedom to us and a lot of internal transformation.